In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Let us now go to uh, the famous scene of the death of Lazarus in uh, chapter chapter 11 of St. John. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with the ointment and wiped his feet uh, with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But uh, when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness is not unto death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. We know eventually the Lord arrived, but it was an illness unto death. It seemed Lazarus indeed had died. And uh, when uh, Jesus saw the commotion, when he saw how Lazarus was, they told him plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Let us go to him. He said this to his disciples. And uh, when he arrives there, all the commotion, where have you laid him? He asked, come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? So in the death and in the burial of, of Lazarus, as we see in that moment of emotion, Jesus watched that long procession of mourners. He saw all of them passing by from first to last. And of course, he understood the reason for it all. He understood why they were there. He knew perfectly well and deeply into the essence of death and how death came into the world with the sin of Adam. He sort of understood the the macro image and the macro truth of everything. And yet he, he wept for Lazarus. And he weeps for you and for me too. Because you and I will also die. And when we know this perfectly that we will die, we don't need any dogmatic definition for that, of course, but... It does purify us a lot to reflect on the fact that we will die, to pray about our own death. It's almost uh, an essential thing that we have to do during a retreat, to pray about not death in general, but me. I am going to die. I'm going to get sick. I may be 
lying in bed for quite a while, something will take me. John says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Well, for us to pray about death, to meditate on it, we have to take away the stone. Because we can't really see death with that, with that large stone in front. So he, he asked them to take away the stone, remove the stone. Well, who were the men that removed that stone? We don't know. It doesn't say, you know, Charlie and Bill there, those two tough guys. You know. <laughs> They're the strongest. Oh, they, they can do it. I think, I imagine, you know, your typical caretaker type of guy around the church. Well, I'll do it, Father. I'll take care of it. You know. We don't know who removed that stone. But my impression is that they were not afraid to roll it away, even though it was heavy. It was a heavy job. Yet that heavy job was an opportunity to prove his power over death, to show that, okay, Lazarus might be smelling. Yamfetit, know, he was smelling, but he could come out. And he could come out even with his burial cloths still on, still wrapped, uh, shrouded in those burial cloths. And But for that to be seen, they had to remove the stone. He could have, like, risen, but then not being able to come out. And we know he came out with them. Many paintings show him all kind of teetering there as he tries to come out. But he comes out with the burial cloths. They're still on him because he would eventually need them again. Jesus came out without them. He left them behind. He would never use them again. And so we too, as priests, must remove the stone so that we can see Jesus act in our life and how our ministry clears people's minds about death and the meaning of death. It is really us removing the stone to help others really see the meaning of death and and Christ's power over death, as those men did when they removed the stone in front of Lazarus. And death is real. It smells but Jesus has, over, has power over that too. It's similar how at the resurrection the women were on their way to the tomb and what were they asking themselves as they were going with all their spices to anoint the Lord? They were asking themselves, who will remove the stone? Certainly, they felt they didn't have the strength to do such a thing. That's why they were saying, well, who's going to do it? We're here to, to anoint the body. And yet the removal of that stone when they arrived was the opportunity to see that, op- that empty tomb. It was the proof that he had risen. And, and then uh, they run back to tell what happened. And Peter and John ran now to the tomb. Again, the tomb with the, empty, with the, with the stone removed. John was younger. He arrived first. But... Out of great respect, he waited before entering. They were still mourning. They were still in sorrow. But upon arriving at that tomb, he, he, like he couldn't bring himself to come in. It was as though there was like a haunting feeling about 
entering the place of the dead, entering an actual tomb. You'd have to crouch down a little bit. It's a dark place. You know, am I ready to, to go into that tomb, the place of death? And then you know, Peter straddles behind and is out of breath, and he, but he has no problem. He just goes directly in. You know, like the, the authority of Peter, the authority of the Pope goes and faces the reality of death, if you like. And of course, Peter entered. He saw the burial cloths. Then John entered, and John tells us he saw and believed. He saw the burial cloths, the shroud. He saw the blood-stained marks on that shroud. He saw and remembered all that pain of the actual passion. But he also saw Peter there, praying, and as as though it's as though Peter's position, the way Peter looked, it like it, it it evoked his own faith too. If Peter believes, I believe. John saw. And he believed. But Benedict said he, the Lord left his burial cloth there because he would no longer need them again. Just that very fact, seeing the burial cloth there. He had the power, Jesus had the power over Lazarus, but he also had power, of course, over his own death. So how could he not have power over our death? But only if we are truly united to him if we are his friends within a few days Jesus knew that he was the second Adam or the son of man that he would take on the sins of the world and thereby do away with the real grip of death that it has on us that inheritance of death that the real grip he will take it away he would transform it into something so that it would no longer be such an absolute uh, disaster but maybe as I reflect on my own death maybe I still somewhat feel death still has a grip on me I'm still afraid that I haven't done enough to prepare myself for that moment maybe like the women who were worried about who will take away the stone I may feel those heavy stones in my life that are blocking me from seeing the resurrected Lord. You know, the, the stone, the heavy stones of my own laziness, my lack of supernatural vision, my lack of drive, my lack of courage, my lack of daring in my priestly ministry, undertaking projects or, or f- helping people to convert. Maybe it's as though death still has a grip on me. We ask St. Joseph now, the patron of a, of a happy death, was surrounded by Mary and Jesus when he died. In the 17th century, many painters started to, to paint that scene. It was around the 17th century that that started. The Italian painters started that in, in Aquila, and it was, it was taken up by many others. It's as though people felt a great peace at seeing the death of, jo- of Joseph. What is the stone that I have to remove in my life? Each one of us has to identify what exactly it is that will render my death kind of, not exactly useless, but, you know, not a moment of faith for me. You know, like that interview that I was mentioning about with that Chinese gangster in uh, L.A., 
He had done 12 years in prison and after a botched robbery, which he was trying to rob a, a drug lord, he ended up on the wrong side of the car and his other friend got, got uh, shot, the very place where he was supposed to be. He thought that that should have been me. I was supposed to, I should be dead now. And he, he began to see death everywhere. He was just haunted by the fact that, that he should have been there, but he's still alive. And death is going to come at any moment. He thought he was going to get run over. He was going to get shot. And it led to a, a kind of a sense of emptiness of his life. This, this dark blanket of death was hovering over him. Until he met that pastor who with great astuteness helped him to convert. Pope Benedict himself has been asked about his own death a few years ago and he, he responded with that famous line he said I, I know I'm coming closer but it won't just be an end in fact it will be an encounter and when, when Pope Benedict passed away that's the phrase that I saw in all kinds of memes uh, with his picture it won't be the end it'll be an encounter so if it's not an end I have to get ready for that encounter oh, you finish a video game, it's game over. It's The game is over. It's finished. It's done. C'est fini. But with death, it's the moment of the encounter. And when you think of Jesus in front of Lazarus, he has, he has just restored him to health. But the fact that Jesus is able to do that, that cost him something. No? And... Uh, just as the restoration of our spiritual life cost him his own life on the cross. Think of the woman who touched the hem of his garment. And it says, Jesus was aware that power came out of him. When she, she was healed, it was as though something came out of Jesus. Like, a, you know, at least that's the expression that is used, as though for any good to happen it has to somehow come from Jesus from his power it's as though no disease or, or sin ever touched him by contagion you know, Jesus probably never would have had COVID <laughs> no way man no COVID for Jesus no. I don't hear of any actual illness that the Lord had like a physical illness of some kind but of course he, he took on our illnesses our sins You'll remember how Mary of Bethany came to where Jesus was and saw him, and she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. He had wept for Lazarus, and she saw that he would not have died if you had been here. You had the power. But to show that he had the power, he said, take away that stone. Lord, by now, he has been there four days. He will smell. Yam fetit. But all that underlined his power. She said, he's going to smell. And it makes sense because uh, sin and death always give off a bad smell. There's the bad smell of pride. The high and terrible odor of vanity. 
Do I have that bad smell of pride in my life, that bad smell of vanity expressed in different ways? But if, if we can identify vanity in, my, in our life or, or pride where it happens, at least we have to know that it really smells bad. But we must remove the, the stone and smell out the bad odor of sin in our life. Not simply cover it up with perfume or incense, but get rid of it. St. Josemaria said in Forge, For each one of us, as for Lazarus, it was really a veni for us, come out, which got us moving. Veni for us, that's what the, Jesus said to, to Lazarus. Veni for us, come out. And, he, and he, he sort of said it in a very loud voice. He says, how sad it is to see those who are still dead and don't know the power of God's mercy. Renew your holy joy. For opposite the man who is decomposing without Christ, there is another one who has risen with him. Okay? The strong words, many for us, the strong words, they're not simply words of like uh, miraculous power that he has the power to do. It's really the strong words are the power of God's mercy. And understanding God's mercy, right, that, that helps us to have confidence in, in Him and also face the reality of our death, always through the lens of God's mercy. I may have told you about that uh, famous, um, the famous Swedish uh, pastor who was the head of this large, large uh, mega church in Sweden. It's one of the biggest churches. He had thousands of people in his church, and he had all these projects of, of all kinds. And he and his wife, uh, Birgitte, decided what well, he decided one day in front of thousands of people in his mega church, uh, Protestant. He said, "Today, my wife and I are being received in the Roman Catholic Church." And he converted, you know, and everybody was like, "What?" You know, and uh, he recounts how you know he he was so pained at seeing the history of. Uh, Separation between the Catholics and the Protestants, and he just could not shake that. He would try to forget about it, but he could not shake it. And and he he recounts how uh, at one point finally uh, he was able to do his first confession. He'd never done a confession in his life. And uh, I don't know if this was just before being received or exactly when. And he was he got like scrupulous about it. Okay, try. Do I have to say everything? What if I forget to say this? What if I forget to say something? He was getting all like agonizingly scrupulous about everything. And he said, is this going to be a magical formula? Is this really going to work? And he just, just recounts the kind of agony that he was going through as he was either preparing or actually saying his first confession. But he said when he heard the words of absolution, they were just like honey from the comb. He just, everything just like, whoa washed away no no more worries at all right and that's in some ways what it was like the existential proof that Christ was with him when he felt the powerful mercy of God like honey over his soul that's what we have to ask for of course because that mercy is how Christ is present with us that's how we are present to his people That's why John Paul II said that original sin is truly the key to interpreting reality. Original sin, how what we have inherited, 
There is in us, he says, a, a Lazarus body decomposing without Christ, without his presence. This happens when? It happens when I go about my things with a very human vision. I go through the rituals of everyday life. Maybe for us priests, we go through the Mass and you know, do the breviary, we do a funeral, the marriage prep course, the parish meeting. That's just another thing I have to do. I just have to do it. It's my job. And it kind of just stays as our job. And perhaps as I do these things, I'm kind of like lifeless. I'm like Lazarus. I'm, am I like Lazarus, just like smelling there in the tomb? The smell of pride, the smell of vanity, the smell of activism, the smell of mere human vision? Maybe I'm lifeless in the evening when I waste my time in front of the computer or on my phone. Is it possible that I'm like lifeless? Not really praying, not really offering my work, not giving you, Lord, my attention out of acts of love, my perhaps lack of interest in my brother priests, and not really fomenting the fraternity that my brother priests deserve and need from me. Lord, help me to identify the different mechanisms that pride uses to ensnare me. You know, pride does that. It dulls. It dulls your vision. It dulls the vision of myself. Each one of us is born with a tiny little insatiable tyrant within us, like King Jong Un, you know, like with the weird, weird haircut, you know. You know. Yes, yes, yes. I'm. You know, whatever he does. And he goes like this. He claps uh, at all the people staring at him and thinking he's, literally they think he's God. I mean, and whoever is, is ruled by pride, even if he achieves every one of his objectives, any one, any one of his needs, he will never truly be satisfied. He will never really be able to fill the void that would be required by absolute esteem. It's what the world cannot give. That Chinese gangster, he was just going out around with a deep chasm, a void that he could not fill. And besides being insatiable, pride is essentially very competitive. Pride is, if it's pride that what motivates us, even, even someone whose merits are equal to our own, is enough to make us feel somehow restless or, or drab. And this could engender envy, it could just engender this dissatisfaction. And, you know, if it's not corrected on time, it could create a lot of tensions in our life. It may be the, the root of anger, you know, maybe you know, when you think of a person with anger, they, you think, well, this, this such and such a thing happened when they were young, or this terrible thing. But, you know, you know, at the root of, of anger, there's, there's a, a deep uh, underlying pride there somewhere. We end up in competition with everyone. And Let the absolution well over us like honey from the comb.
Because for us, the mercy of God cannot just be an adjunct in our life. Of course, the raising of Lazarus was a preparation for our Lord's own death. It was a foreshadowing. It showed, uh, you know, it was in preparation for for the power that he would have not only over Lazarus and others and the widow of Naim and all that, but but over his own death. Fulton Sheen saw the, the parallel. Tomb of Lazarus provoked the decision to give him a cross, but he in return would give up the cross for the empty tomb. Hose finds these funny parallels because, of course, after they saw that, the Pharisees saw that Jesus had power over Lazarus, that's, what, that's when they decided to kill him. And that's somehow what he needed to be able to die on the cross in order to be able to rise. He had already risen to others. There was the daughter of, the, of Jairus, there was the, su- the son of the widow of Naim, The daughter of Jairus, well, I just died. Talita Kum, a beautiful painting in the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts by um, a German 19th century painter, a symbolist. I think his name was Gregor. And it's a painting of Jesus at the bedside of, of uh, the, the girl there, the daughter of Jairus. She probably has a name now. I don't remember her name now, but uh, it's a beautifully framed painting. It's very realistic. It's a realistic school, and she's very, very, very pale. Jesus is kind of in profile, sitting at her, and he's just taking her arm, and around is a beautiful frame with kind of columns, and above, in Hebrew, it says, Talitakum, uh, right? And, of course, anybody seeing that is supposed to know that that Hebrew is Talitakum, but... Uh, but on her on her forearm, as he grabs her, she's very pale. There's a little bug. You know, the guy the guy has painted a little bug. You can see it. You look, there's something there, and you look closer, and it's a it's a bug, suggesting, of course, that she's dead. It's like the instant before she's about to rise. And then he loved, you know, he loved Lazarus too, he, and his sisters Martha and Mary. They were the ones who sent for him. This illness is not unto death. It has come for the glory of God, to bring glory to the Son of God. So that means that our death too, in some way, also has to lead to that, to that being an act of glory. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever read that passage in St. Alfonso de Liguori, where he describes uh, an actual death. He says it's a, it's a powerful um, Account that helps us to imagine death, and no doubt you have seen this before. But uh, he says this is clearly like what he has himself experienced. He says, uh, "Imagine that you behold a person who's just expired. Look at that body still laid on the bed, the head fallen on the chest, the hair in disorder and still bathed in the sweat of death, the eyes sunk, the cheeks hollow." the face the color of ashes, the lips and the tongue like iron, the body cold and heavy. The beholders grow pale and tremble. 
How many at the sight of the deceased, of, of a deceased relative or friend, have changed their life and retired from the world? Still greater horror will be excited when the body begins to putrefy. Twenty-four hours have not elapsed since the death of that young man, and his body has already began to exhale an offensive smell. The windows must be opened. A great quantity of incense must be used. And to prevent the communication of disease the, to the entire family, he must soon be transferred to the church and buried in the earth. If he has been one of the rich or the nobles of the earth, he says, quoting from St. Ambrose, his body shall send forth a more intolerable stench. <laughs> you know? Gravius fetent divitum corpora. That's St. That's Ambrose. You know? But I like the fact that it says here, uh, okay, he's getting really bad. He's got to get a lot of incense. Uh, we have to transfer him to the church. You know, and then, So you get the worst stuff, right? So... You know, and uh, that's what we're going to be one day, with our our head and our cheeks hollow and the face and the color of ashes. And and it is true when you do see a, a dead person immediately. You know, it really is very striking, even if it just happened. I mean, my if I can tell you my own experience, one time I I went to anoint a uh, a man in the hospital in Montreal. And he was not terribly sick, but you know, I, I tell all the family to leave. Please, can you believe the whole family was in the room and the, they were crying? And I said, if you could just leave, I'm going to hear his confession and anoint him. And suddenly, the the man was like awake. He wasn't talking at all for the longest time, and now suddenly he was awake, speaking very clearly. <laughs> uh, heard his confession, anointed him, and uh, the people came back in, and he was back again like he was before, <laughs> and. Uh, and then, as I was going out, the, this nurse said, Father, there's a family here, but the patient has just passed away. Can you pray there? And uh, sure enough, that's what exactly what it was. It was exactly like this description. Color ashes, the lips like iron, body cold and heavy. And people were, were beginning to tremble around. So, I could say a memento for, for the guy. I don't know, I prayed for him and and um, I eventually went home. The next day, the next day, I'm in the street, and the daughter of the guy I anointed, she thanked me for coming, and she said, you know, about two minutes after you left, he died. <laughs> what? He died two minutes, literally. Like, it was just like right on time, right? And that, so you see both a living who dies well, and a, di- a dead person, well, he's a dead person, what can you do? Makes you think of Miguel Pro, who was that Mexican priest who that that powerful image, if you recall, um, when he's on the in front of the firing range, he's he's about to be shot and he's dressed in civil clothing. I don't know, he was in hiding or something, and he's he's put a blind. They give him a blindfold as he's about to be shot, and he said, "No, I don't want a blindfold." And they had divided him to turn his back, and he said, "No, I don't want. My, I want to be facing my." my executioners and then in the imitation of Christ on the cross he put out his hands extended them like this and said Viva Cristo Rey and just as he said that 
they shot him. And there was a photographer there who took that picture of him with his arms outstretched. Now you can find that picture, you know, it's a holy card. Truly a man reconciled with his God, ready to die. Do I think of death when I say the three Hail Marys before going to bed? Our founder invited us to stretch our hands like that too when we say the three Hail Marys. And as I lie down, it's like I'm about to die. I invoke my guardian angel. I know I won't have my hands empty. Or will I go to death empty-handed? Of course, we ask St. Joseph, patron of a happy death, to help us now to meditate on how prepared we are for death and where are the snares of pride and vanity and, and sin, really, that I have to identify so that I come to the Lord with my hands full of His mercy, His love for me, and be ready for that moment that I one day will face. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you all to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.